All right, folks, we're back with another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. And tonight we are joined by Robert Schwab of Schwab Entertainment. And he is here to talk about uh, some of his indie RPG, well, his career RPG work, but most importantly, some of the projects he's been working on on his own company, Schwab Entertainment, specifically one that just launched, was it last year or the year before, Shadows of the Demon Lord? Uh, it was uh, 2015. 2015. Okay, so I knew it was right around that time frame. I just yeah. couldn't quite remember. Awesome, well, awesome. So, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, of course, we're joined by my ever-present co-host, Nick, who is uh, floating around there in the background doing God knows what. Hi. But, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, tonight we're just going to – it's going to be another big RPG talk because we know that the uh, community really likes that. They like us to get away from talking about miniatures and uh, actually talk to people that are creative. So, <laughs> Robert, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in the whole – uh, industry of writing RPGs and yeah, writing for uh, companies. It, it's a whirlwind story of despair and alcohol-fueled rage. Uh, but the, aside <laughs> from that, um, uh, I got started uh, about, I guess, 15-ish years ago, and um, there was an open call from a D20 publisher because I got started right when the D20 bubble starting to blow up. And uh, I pitched a couple books. They bought those books. And then I did a few other things that either did or didn't come out. I can't remember which. And I uh, landed a job. I did a couple freelance gigs for the uh, Green Ronin Publishing. And uh, then so that I got hired as a developer. And I did some work for Fantasy Flight. I did the Grim D20 book and uh, Book of the Fiends for the Ronins. Yeah, so I landed a developer job with the Ronins, and then after that, I jumped into uh, doing Warhammer Fantasy roleplay development, and it's been D and D ever since. And then my own gig. So yeah, I've been kept around the block a little bit, uh, and it shows if you look at how white my beard is now compared to what it was when I started. <laughs> That's a lot of game supplements and a lot of booze. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think I, I think at one point I stopped counting after I hit two hundred titles. Good Lord. 200. I mean, that's magazine articles and all that other stuff. But uh, yeah, I've, I've stopped counting altogether because it just makes me sad. Because you know what they say about game designers? Game designers be buried uh, surround, buried with all the outer print books they wrote. That's that's what we get. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's kind of the sad truth of the industry. Because after a while, like things only sell for so long before people are like, nah, don't bother anymore. Do print on demand or PDF. Sure. Awesome. Awesome. So, I mean, obviously you've worked a lot in the industry, but big thing we want to talk about tonight. And one thing I'm excited about ever since uh, my buddy T.S. Lewicart over at Cubicle 7 pointed me in the direction of Shadows of the Demon Lord, which is right <laughs> up my alley. I, You know, it's a very dark gothic setting and the setting is there to kind of screw you over, which I, I, I personally enjoy. So, yeah, just I mean, this is your baby. Tell us all about it. So uh, I got started with Demon Lord, uh, I guess it was uh, January of 2014. Uh, I just wrapped up my work on D&D 5th Edition, and they were taking it over the finish line, doing development work and all the stuff that goes with production. And uh, so I, after, uh, after that, I was kind of faced with the, the, the perennial question for game designers, do I want to go back into freelancing, do I want to start my own company? And one of the things I decided was that I wanted to start my own business because, you know, going back to work for four or five cents a word is 
words is, is really tantamount to putting a shotgun in your mouth. So um, I decided that I was not going to put a shotgun in my mouth and launch my own gig, which probably would have could have could have ended in a variety of ways. Spin the wheel of, of destiny and see where where you end up. But uh, I, I did not. I, I managed to make it work. So what I did with Demon Lord was I, I was not bashful about talking about in the Kickstarter video and in interviews after that about wanting to make a game that I want to run when I'm a little drunk and with people who are also a little drunk where we don't think too much about what goes on in between sessions. And we're just kind of, we want to run a game that's relaxed and fun and gets out of the way of itself. And I also wasn't shy about talking about how I don't, you know, this is kind of, I hate to use this phrase love letter, but if I would probably say it's like a pornographic letter to uh, all the gaming influences I've had over my years. And so you'll see Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, you'll see various editions of D&D, you'll see new stuff, and you'll see it all kind of matched together. But really what I wanted, but, but the ultimate goal was, was to say, I understand that based on company data that we got at Wizards, that most gaming groups fall apart after two months. And the promise for big sandbox games is that you're going to have 20 levels or set whatever your unit of, uh, of your unit of measurement is going to be of, of gaming. And you're never going to get there because your group's going to fall apart after 60 days and everyone's sad. And then everyone's not doing the thing they want to do, which is gaming. So rather than delay the, uh, the gratification of facing Orcus crawling out of the abyss or challenging Asmodeus as he's bursting through the gates of hell or punching cord in the face when he's, you know, trying, he's tied one on, was to bring all that, all that end set stuff and bring it up front and forward in the campaign setting. So what you're looking at in Demon Lord is a world where this big, scary universe devourer that's got a whole bunch of names. We call it Demon Lord because it's low-hanging fruit, but there are all sorts of names for it in the book. Abaddon, the Destroyer, the Shadow of the Dark, whatever. Uh, this guy is bursting through like the Kool-Aid man, and he's going to tear this world apart. Oh, and, yeah. Right. So you poor bastards who are playing in this game are, living, are, are running around in this world doing stuff either to live it up uh, to delay the inevitable or to maybe somehow avert the destruction that's going to happen. And that's kind of the premise of the game is that you've got 11 game sessions you to explore ex experience in the, this end time set piece thing and face off against demons, weird cults, strange twisted fairies, devils, and a variety of other terrible things that come screaming out of my head. And uh, it's a, uh, it's a lot of fun. And the fact is that, you know, you think about it, it's 44 hours of gameplay to play a full campaign and very few role-playing games that are not like one book kind of deals or, you know, 60 pages. We're doing one night deal or one night game. This is a full campaign in 11 sessions. And so that was kind of what I built this game toward. And that's kind of think what it's managed to achieve over the last uh, couple of years. That's a lot of talking. That sounds, <laughs> sounds like a whole lot of fun. Thank you. Especially giant Kool-Aid man demon. demon. Yeah. Big Kool-Aid man <laughs> demon's pretty badass. It really doesn't matter what else you describe. All there is is a giant Kool-Aid man demon. That's yeah, right. I mean, why bother des designing a dungeon? It's going to break through all the walls anyway. But right. So, <laughs> so, tell us a little, yeah. so tell us a little bit about some of the gameplay behind it. Like, obviously, you've worked on D&D &D and a lot of other projects. And you said that there's a lot of homage to a lot of things that you've really liked. But what, what did you kind of settle on for, like, a system of how this plays? 
Uh, so, uh, you know, I think a lot of the a lot of the big sandbox role playing games have a sub game that go, that's that's built into these these things, right? Uh, you look at third edition D anD D. I know you guys do a lot of indie stuff, but so I'm not sure how familiar your audience is with it. But I'm assuming they are. I'm just going to make that assumption that everyone knows what D anD D is. Uh, so, if you have third edition D anD D, you you play a game called bonus hunting, where you're scouring the rule books and situations to accumulate as many bonuses you can to mitigate the randomness of the each one. That's what you're doing in, in, in third edition, pretty much. Story, sure, sure, sure. But really what you're doing at the table is scooping up as many bonuses as you can. Uh, fourth edition was the same way. Fifth edition just changes out from bonus hunting to advantage hunting. Uh, but advantage hunting is cool because it means that you just need one thing to get the big benefit, but it also stops you from thinking beyond that. Not to, not to trash on any game, uh, but that's just the way fifth edition was built. So I understand that what people are trying to do when you, when any time a game that you're any kind of game that's going to have a super random d20, d30, d whatever, uh, is going to have uh, a lot of randomness in the die. So gameplay is uh, it still kind of embraces the 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 wicked, awful evilness of the d20, but it uh, mitigates that through uses of boons and banes, which are d6 as you roll with your d20. And what I think happens and what I've gotten back from a lot of the people who play and are enthusiastic about the game is that it encourages you to keep looking for ways to improve your situation, but it gives you diminishing returns on doing so uh, because you're only adding the highest or subtracting the lowest of the D6s you're adding. So for example, if you were going to be, let's say you're walking, you're, you're trying to knock down a door and for some reason, I'm the game master and I'm a dick. And I say, you know, you have to, you have to roll a die to kick this door down. And uh, normally the game would say, well, if we would just, just kick the door down and move on. But in this case, Rob's feeling especially salty, so he's going to go ahead and ask for that. So uh, uh, in this case, I might, you might say, well, I drank my potion of door kicking, and uh, 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 my buddy here is helping me, and uh, I'm... I'm I'm super angry over something. And so I would give you three boons. You'd roll three six-siders to go with it. And then the highest of the roll. If you tried that later and you were drunk, lonely, and in a trailer or in, uh, uh, and, and poisoned from a bad night in Tug Alley, you might have three banes on your roll and you would subtract the highest of those rolls. So anyway, that's just, that's core basic mechanics. It's really, really, and it's boring to talk about. But the point is, <laughs> is that uh, the, 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 main, the main difference between this game is that I think there's an argument to be made for some games uh, expect that the game engine's always running in the background. So if you, that you're just kind of stepping, that you might engage this engine that's always cooking when you're playing and, uh, or you might be just playing a game and the role playing kind of bubbles up out of the interactions with the matrix uh, where Demon Lord posits that you use the rule set to solve those narrative hiccups that show up when you're trying to tell a story. So do you hit the orc in the face with your battle axe? You might, you might in some situations, other situations you might be maybe, and then other situations, well, the orc's a mile away from you, you're not gonna hit the orc in the the face with your battle axe. And so just kind of using the rules as kind of a narrative tool rather than kind of a defining your gameplay, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely, so it it allows, it allows the dice to help tell a story outside of just like, oh, well, I built up like this plus 15 modifier. I rolled the dice and hey, look at that. I hit and I did damage. Next. Right. I mean, I, and I think that, you know, I, a lot of people will, will, will dump on, uh, on, D, on D&D and its various uh, iterations. But I think that um, those games are cool and they're cool for a reason because they give you, a, a, they give you an expected gameplay. But uh, 
you know, Demon Lord tries to stand apart from that, even though it has a little D&D and a little Warhammer and a little bit of rock and roll, and a little bit of country and its pedigree. Uh, <laughs> the, the goal was always to try to say that, you know, role playing games are all about just getting together your friends and BSing for two to four hours and making up cool stuff. And you don't want and if you are enslaved to your game engine, then that gets in the way of making up cool stuff. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, without like dumping on D and D, because obviously that's how most of us got our start. You know, after a while, you you started to kind of see that in games where it turned into more of a, like you were saying, a modifier hunter than right. anything else. You know, and there was times where I almost felt like rolling the dice got in the way of telling a story compared to just like ah, this happens. Right. Well, I mean, that's and I think that's because that. D&D became, you know, you think about it when D&D in the earliest days, in its earliest incarnations, D&D was a rule set that people bent and twisted and did whatever they want with. I have a very vivid memory of going to Origins shortly after third edition came out and playing in a second edition game, thinking I was signed up for a third. And, you know, watching this guy, and he's got this binder, not full of women, but rather a binder full of, of house rules, which I thought was hilarious. At the time, I was like, you know, why do you want that game, right? Thinking this is, you know, of course, way, way back. And then it dawned on me that what happened with D&D is it became not so much uh, a rule set that we use to, to facilitate the things we do, but it became this thing where the only way I could put it would be it's a religion of the book uh, because you're playing what the book tells you to do. Rather than being good game masters or dungeon masters, we become good engineers, uh, and as I said before, there is nothing wrong with that. And I, and I would, I would be happy to pick up dice and get my power cards out and kick ass with from fourth edition or play any incarnation of third edition or whatever. But, you know, once, once it becomes a religion of the book where you look to the book to guide your storytelling, then you're missing the point because we make up, this is all about makeup, make believe. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, yeah, I mean that that's uh that's definitely one of the things that I've kind of stressed when I've talked to people about RPGs, you know, cuz uh my my take after D&D was very much the White Wolf games where it's like Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf the Apocalypse and yes, there was a lot of dice rolling in those games, but there was so much going on with it that like if you didn't have a good well, in this case, storyteller, which is the game master, and you didn't have players that are willing to participate in a story, even if it was like, look, this 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 session, I'm going to do something politically to screw you. And they have to be okay with that, like outside of the game. Like sure. it, it, it kind of, it falls apart if you kind of take it from that idea of like, I'm just going to make a giant werewolf that kicks ass and that's all he does. Right. Yeah. So. Cool. You know, so, it's interesting, but you, you go back to like second edition D&D, which was a fairly crunchy game for its day. And I remember we were able to tell really interesting and cool stories without becoming locked into, I mean, and we still had, we still had Twinkie stuff, right? I mean, that's, you're never going to get away from that in any kind of role-playing game. that has got a lot of different character options that you can smash together to make whatever you want. Um, I mean, I would argue that the more choice you put into a character creation system, the more room for abuse you're opening, the, the more room, more territory for abuse you open up. Uh -huh. I, mean, I mean, if you if you had you've got four scores and they are one to four and it's uh, potato, rutabaga, turnip and, uh, and 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 fertilizer, 
and that's all you got and you have to role play your witch character based on whatever that hell I just made up, you're going to probably go, you're going to be a lot more creative, I think, because you have no, nothing to cling to. Right. Um, right. So, but I, I do think that as games have gotten more complex and as, uh, I mean, that's one of the things we fought against with fifth edition was trying to get away from the, what we call the different power buckets or different baskets of design that you, you, you draw from in order to assemble your character. Right. I mean, cause you look at third or third or, or like look at fourth, you had race, you had class, you had skills, you had powers, you had feats, uh, and it just went on and on. Themes went on and on and on. And the more different categories of things you're drawing from allows you to create these super hyper abusive combinations, which pretty much allows you to win D&D. And that's not what these games were built to do because that's just a really slow version of playing a video game. Uh, it's better when you are challenged because there aren't rules that you're leaning on in order to exploit or game the system. But anyway, I'm just preaching to choir, I think. <laughs> yeah, but it's always good for, uh, especially our listeners to hear that because, you know, a lot of them, they have been playing a lot of the mainstream stuff and a lot of them are looking at the independent stuff and like wanting to know what's the difference. You know, so it's always good to hear this, especially from somebody who's in the industry that's done this for so long. So, you know, it's like I was saying, it's it's always helpful, always helpful. But uh, so with Shadows of the Demon Lord, I know you kind of touched upon the fact that it's a very loose based system as far as like how things work. You've got, you know, Banes and Boons. Like how, how do, you, you kind of mentioned a little bit about character creation in other games, but how does character creation work in Shadows of the Demon Lord? Like, do you have classes? Do you have like certain skills that you stick to or yeah, so, you just do whatever? Sure. Uh, so the, the idea was, is that your character would gain complexity as you played. Um, so if you're a new, if you're coming into the game fresh, then you have one real, you have one real decision to make. Uh, are you, who are you? Are you a human grave robber? Are you a changeling thief, a criminal or a orc grave digger? None of these things really matter so much. They just give you some raw numbers and they give you a descriptor tag, which helps the game master when he's building the story or when she's building the story. So as you, and the, the idea is that when you're, you have your starting character in hand, uh, you are, you're struggling because you don't have a whole lot of bells and whistles to play with. You have to really get to know your character. You have to think about how you're going to overcome obstacles and challenges. And, you know, kicking down a door and killing things isn't the answer because you're going to get destroyed. Um, <laughs> If uh, you survive that first adventure, the survivors uh, Voltron together and form a group, and that group gains a level. And as you continue playing the game, uh, your group will continue to gain levels. Every time you finish an adventure, your group levels up. At three discrete points in the level tree, in the level ladder, uh, you're going to make a decision about your character. Level one, you're going to choose your novice path. Level three, you choose your expert path, and at level seven, you choose a master path. Uh, if you're a D&D nerd like me, what this means is that you're basically building a class over the course of your campaign. So at level one, when you choose your novice path, you're going to choose between warrior, magician, priest, or rogue. And these are just big, broad fantasy archetypes that, that I think we all recognize that says that I want to be kind of a healer guy or a support role, so I want to play a priest, I want to be a sneaky dude, I want to play a rogue, and so on. Now, the decision you make about your novice path is really going to be determined by based on what you did in that first adventure. So if that first adventure we're playing and you happen to be kicking down doors and beating this crap out of stuff with your stick, 
then you're probably going to go the route of the warrior. But if you happen to find this bizarre tome that's nine, that's uh, four feet by three feet, uh, get uh, metal plates for covers wrapped in human skin and have baby teeth along the edges and it's wrapped in barbed wire and there's a human tongue on the face and the game master describes when you're, when you're going to sleep for the night to rest up a bit before you have to deal with the next horrible thing that's coming after you. The book whispers to you and the tongue flaps against the cover. <laughs> you're going to probably say, you know, I'm going to look in this book and I might go with the root of magician. You might. Uh, so, <laughs> At level three, uh, now you've gone two levels and, you know, you've gotten better at being a badass warrior. You've learned a few spells or you're a super backstabby, murderous hobo, uh, whatever you are. Uh, you're going to make another choice at level three. And again, this choice is, 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 should really be influenced by what happened over the previous two game sessions. So your expert choice is a, is a period of an opportunity for refinement. So if you're a warrior and you just want to keep kicking ass, you can just go fighter. But if uh, you found this horrific spell book and you went the root of magic and you learned the hateful defecation spell and you're able to do all sorts of terrible things, you might be seeking redemption or you might become possessed by whatever foul spirit that lives in that book and choose to become an oracle. Uh, and there are all sorts of options for, for expert path. But what, what's interesting, what I think is interesting about the game engine is that because you're always getting stuff from a previous choice, you're kind of insulated against making what, you know, a suboptimal game choice. So, well, you know, you look at third edition multi-classing, it was like, well, of course you start, if you're in a multi-class, of course you start with a rogue because you get a billion skill points. And you're a fool to start as a cleric because you get garbage skill points. You get all the same benefits for just waiting a level, right? Right. Uh, this means that if you choose to be a warrior to, out of the gate, you're always going to be pretty good at kicking butt with a sword or a bow or whatever the hell you want to fight with. And similarly, if you choose to be a magician, you're always going to have a leg up on anybody else casting spells because you learn that stuff to start with. And everything else is going to layer on top of that. So long story short, when you, play, when you get to level seven, you're going to make your final choice, which is your mastery. And that is going to be what thing are you best at? And we've got some nice little cute labels that go with these, like Death Dealer and uh, Astro <laughs> Astromancer and... Uh, uh, there's a variety of them. And these things just kind of give zoom in on one area of character development that you really just, that you find sexy. Uh, so if you want to be a death dealer, that means you're pretty damn good at just chopping people up. And if you want to be an astromancer, you're really good at calling upon celestial magic and shaping it to match your will. And that's kind of how that goes. So what it means is that over the life of the campaign, I might play some schmuck farmer who's stomping around and pulling turnips out of the yard and then this horrible zombie that of my of my recently dead wife comes to my farm, kills my kid, and now I'm sucked into this adventure. I find some friends, we survive. I spend that time killing things with a shovel. I decide to make him a warrior. Two levels later, I have found this idol, which is which I pulled out of the ocean out of a lake where there's this sunken ziggurat. And this idol whispers to me when I have bowel movements. And so <laughs> I make this horrible pact with this. Uh, this this fecal monster and I become a warlock and then later on I'm feeling really good about myself and I become uh, a mass murderer and I become a death dealer and I've got a really interesting character arc because I've kind of shown how my characters developed as I've gone and I've got a nice end uh, and I can kind of wrap up the campaign knowing that all my decisions may mean something and they kind of contribute to my character's story how about that that works 
really well of describing it all. So, like, one of the things that uh, that drew me to the game um, is the fact that, like, even even some of the descriptions that you've used, like, of the book and, like, some of the other things that you, you kind of mentioned is that the game itself is dark. So <laughs> sure. that's, the, that's the thing that, like, really drew me to it is the fact that this is not – I don't want to say it's a it's not a game for kids because obviously people can tone it back if they've got if they want to make it more of a family game. But like the tone of the game is not your typical Greyhawk, if you want to call it that. You, you know, right. you, you don't start as like this noble adventurer, you know, or anything else. And like there, there's no clear cut good guy, and like the bad guys are really really bad. It's not just some guy that's got a, a an attitude and has a sword. Right, right. You can start this game as a murderer. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, so I guess that was uh, one of the things I really wanted uh, to to talk with you about is, you know, compared to some of the more popular games on the market, do you find that like the the mature setting kind of gets in the way of like it being able to do more or not really? Yeah, it does. And that's we're doing a uh, what I jokingly call clean demon board, which is going to be taking the same engine and applying it to a more traditional fantasy set. But for my first game, I mean, I built a reputation on being the guy who would go into pretty dark places because, gosh darn it, I'm a happy, uplifted person. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I've seen your Facebook posts. You're always in the right, bar. <laughs> right. But that's pretty much the truth. Uh, no, but I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's one of those things where it's, uh, you know, you're struggling with, trying to find your place and your identity in a market that's super crowded with games that are in print and then games that have been out of print. You know, you're fighting for a spot in, in an industry that is 40 plus years old. And, you know, with Demon Lord, when I, when I, my wheelhouse is dark, horrible fantasy. And that's the thing that I want to, that's the thing I enjoy writing about. I, I like grossing people out and I like running gritty games I don't necessarily want to murder all the people at my table, their, their characters, but um, I do like it when, when there is genuine discomfort because they know that the situation's dire. And I also know that when they come through it, they're going to feel pretty darn good about it. Um, so, but yeah, it does limit the reach that this game has by itself. But as I said, I mean, I, I we're, we've got we're go, we're expanding the game engine in in different ways. We've got a the clean version called Shadow of the Witch King, which will be hopefully out sometime in 2018. And then we have Tales of the Fallen Moon, which is my half step towards science fiction. Nice. And don't you also have one that's uh, kind of a a, a post apoc demon lord? Yeah, it's called. Uh, it was a setting plugin that we unlocked from the Kickstarter, and it's called Godless. Uh, and it is, uh, it imagine America some number of years in the future after the sea levels rise by 200 feet. And then you add in magic and demons, goblins and orcs and big, scary stuff like that and get a, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's dark and gritty and awful, but it's fun. Nice. Nice. So in that one, again, it, it, it borrows a setting, but it just changes it up. So instead of it being so much like sword and sorcery, it's more guns and gas. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I had this image when I was thinking about building that world, that, that particular world. And really, it's really more of a toolbox to convert your hometown into a Mad Max, work, Mad Max setting. Because who doesn't want to play in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, turned into a post-apocalyptic wasteland? Everyone wants to. I mean, anybody who lives in Murfreesboro <laughs> already knows we're there. Uh, <laughs> 
so uh you know it's but i had this vision of racing down a nasty desert highway with an orc biker gang hot on my ass and then having the magician kind of lean out the window and toss a fireball back at them and then then the big demon drops out of the sky and forms a cra- into a crater about a mile up down the road and figuring out what do you do next that seems to be pretty awesome that, that sounds pretty fun yeah it makes for a t- <laughs> awesome so with with all that going on obviously you, you are keeping pretty damn busy even as an independent guy yeah we've released uh, 117 titles including card sets in uh since august of 2015 wow that's, we're, that's insane we've got four in the hopper various states of production and then i've got uh i've got four projects i'm five, sorry five i'm working on right now and still doing a little bit of freelance here and there. Wow. So how do you find time to sleep? I don't. Okay. Yeah, but as I, I think I just started off with, I'm an alcohol-fueled rage machine. Oh, I, do, so. I do think I remember those words. Something I just like didn't that. realize yeah. the depth that that actually went. Right. Yeah. It goes pretty deep. Bone deep. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is done through piss, vinegar, and experience. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so So... I take it like uh, you're, I'm assuming that you're married. I saw a wedding ring on you there. So yeah. how did how did your wife handle the whole like you running around doing conventions and like doing this really dark stuff? Because like, I, you know, on my side, like my wife's not a gamer, and like I, I will say that right now. So like when I mention like dark games or things that I'm really into on that side of things, she always looks at me like I am a completely fucked up individual. Sure, right, I mean, right. She's not wrong, but she's not, but. Do you run into similar situations? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I think my I think my my lovely lady considers me to be something of a bit of a freak. Uh, when we got when we started dating, she came hilariously. Uh, we're in my filthy apartment. Uh, twenty some odd year, twenty one years ago, twenty two years ago. We're in my filthy apartment. We're playing Rollmaster of all games with my roommate Brian and uh, the game master Jason, some other guy, and it's Rollmaster, so it's. We spent. We just spent three hours making characters. They would die in five seconds, and uh, <laughs> and I'm 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 drunk and I'm wearing a sh- shitty T-shirt and cut off camo shorts, and you know I'm smoking Marlboro Reds and I'm just really an unpleasant guy, and she fell for me at once, and I don't know why, but she's a classy girl. She's you know, so anyway. Uh, it was it was it was almost true love at almost first sight. Before that, of course, we had we were we sat side by side at the Pink Floyd concert when they were during the Division Bell tour, and uh, we did not immediately hit it off. But it was I think we were cursed to be with each other forever after. But she gained a little bit when we when we uh, first started dating. I think for the first couple of years she was she was doing a bit of gaming, and um, she got a career and got focused on those kinds of things. So gaming has been kind of out of her, off her radar. She can still talk the talk somewhat, I think. Uh, she knows what a D8 is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, but as far as her tolerating my, uh, my career choice, I think it's, uh, it's better than me working at McDonald's. I did that. Uh, and uh, no offense to McDonald's workers, all the respect to you guys. Cause that's, that's brutal work. Um, but uh, no, she, uh, she she's very supportive, and she is. I, I, at least I get the sense she's proud of me. But I, I, there might be moments where she resents 
my 16 hour days or freaking out or, you know, that, those kind of things. Yeah. So like, yeah. <laughs> seems slightly reasonable here and there. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, kind of touching on some of that. Um, not so much the wife, the wife side of thing, but you know, that, that's, I guess it kind of falls in line. Like you were talking 16 hour days and things like that. And you know, what would be some good advice that you would have to people out there that want to get involved in this industry? The boy, I get that question a lot. You know, and I, and I, and I, <laughs> as, as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more cynical, my answer is getting darker and darker and darker. Which uh, is exactly why I asked that question. So here's what I tell you. Um, and I'm going to be, I don't know how filthy I can get. How filthy can I get? Uh, this is, there's no filter okay. on our podcast at all. All right. All right. Here's what I would tell you to do. If you like masturbating, you like to masturbate, right? You might like to masturbate a couple times a week or maybe once a week or maybe once a month, but you like to masturbate. Now you don't think you're going to go out and make money masturbating, do you? I mean, you might, you might, you might be able to pull it off, but why would you do it? Why would you turn something that you enjoy some sort of self pleasure thing into a money-making scheme. And if it's a <laughs> sense of being creative, you can do that without trying to get into an industry that is already super tight and crowded and brutal and punishing. And, you know, the rewards are few and far between. Uh, I mean, if you try to get into professional masturbating, good luck. But, I mean, it's the same kind of deal. This is a business that is that we, we make uh, carts and buggies and horse whips and shoes for horses. We don't even... I mean, our industry doesn't even do the things that people do anymore. It's only the fact that suddenly D and D and role playing games are, have hit the radar, have hit you know pop, pop culture's radar for some freakish reason that I'm able to keep my lights on with doing what I do. So I, I think that there are other ways for you to express your 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 creative genius that will probably be less destructive to your liver or whatever body part that would be hurt by whatever your foul <laughs> habit would be. Now that said, that said, if I have not dissuaded you from that career choice of trying to turn something you desperately, desperately love into a way to earn a couple extra dollars a month, if I haven't turned you off from that, then what I recommend you do is not listen to old guys like me. Go make your thing, go embrace your genius. Find what you love and what turns you on. Get yourself, you know, build an audience. Do it the grass, do it the old-fashioned way, not the old old-fashioned way, but go out there and earn the respect and adoration of, of a number of people who are going to help support you because that's what you're going to need. You need people who believe in what you do and what you create and want to read your stuff. And if you can build that audience and you can you can show the world that you're awesome and that you've got these wonderful ideas and you're going to improve someone's life by the fact that you're talking about elf games, do it. Uh, but uh, don't expect that this is going to happen in a year or five years because the old days when you could write that genius article for Dragon Magazine or get that dungeon published in Dungeon are long gone. There aren't those things anymore. And what's left is a bunch of self-publishing guys and, and an industry that's fractured into the OSR movement and in the, in the, the indie game movement and a skeleton crew of people who work for big game companies who are all struggling to survive in a business that is undervalued and being underpaid and, 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 and looking to the next, next horizon for the wonderful thing that's going to change everything again. That's really cynical and dark, I know. 
but it's honest. You know, the funny part is, is you were talking about the masturbating and all that, and I was thinking about, you know, maybe I need to start a masturbation channel. This doesn't sound like a bad thing. You went into this <laughs> description, though, and now I'm terrified. See? See? <laughs> and all, I thought this was the positive side of, of the conversation. It all st- Performance anxiety. It all starts with <laughs> one tug, my friends. One tug. <laughs> one tug leads you down a dark road. It's a very dark road. So basically what I just gather out of all that is like, if you really want to do something, start a blog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you guys are doing it the right way. I mean, if you want to get, I mean, there are a lot of people I know that are, that are, that are either in there, that are in the industry or on the, you know, or orbiting it and they run podcasts or they do blogs or they put out an article or they're like, they're part of the, the DMs guild when they're pumping out uh, cool stuff for pay what you want, which infuriates me to no end. Uh, you know, the, you know, they, they, there there are ways to get in there. None of which are going to keep you gainfully employed, but there are going to be ways that you can engage the thing you love. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if you really, really want to get into it, and you want to be part of that, uh, whatever that, whatever, whatever the fools that we are that do this full time, that takes a lot more. That takes that takes luck, and it takes opportunities, and it takes. It takes a, a, a rock-solid, hardcore stainless steel liver. <laughs> I was going to say, and I'd titanium spine to go along with it because you're going to get, you know, and I, I just know this from being in the industry. Like you, especially if you're like the new up-and-comer, even, even if you've worked for other companies, you're the new up-and-comer. Like there's still going to be so many people that just kick the shit out of you on a, on a regular basis, like – finding ways to like shit on your product and everything else. And you just have to weather all of that storm. You do. And just believe in it. It just be like, you know what? Fuck all of you. This is what I want to do. There's people that I know want the product. I may not be a millionaire by doing it, but I'm still doing what I want to do. Right. And, that, and that's kind of, it's, that's part of I, mean, I didn't even get to the criticism part. That's, that is a whole separate ball of, of happiness. <laughs> For some reason, I don't really think you mean happiness. Yeah, what I mean, it's not it's not a happy meal. There's no toy at the bottom of that box. Those sons yeah. of bitches. See, I don't know, maybe because I was just raised with that whole alpha male mentality. Like the critic, the, the tears of the critics and the whining and complaining of critics sustain me. Like the more and more that they sit there and talk about how my stuff is shit or garbage or anything else, like the more and more I'm just like, yep, that's why I'm still, you know, you're talking about me, so therefore that means I'm doing something right. Sure, I mean, there's also a part of it that's also at least for me is about validation. Um, and you know, I'm, I, not everybody who works in the business has got the alpha male mentality going on. I mean, I think there are a lot of people. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, any, any kind of creative field, you're going to have a, a, a fairly large number of broken people who, who do creative stuff. Right. And, uh, and I'm not saying that, that in a bad way, I mean that, you know, they're, there are a lot of folks out there who who struggle with depression and anxiety and all that other kind of stuff. And when you're confronting, when when somebody holds a mirror up to you and deconstructs what you do in a way that is destructive rather than celebratory, even if it's well deserved, that 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 does have a cost. Yeah, you know, and that kind of goes back to. I think a lot of it still kind of harkens back to the days where, you know, shit. Like I'm I'm going to be 36 this year and like just thinking about everything that I've done on the gaming side of things, like my mom, even though she knows how big the industry is, 
like she still has this idea that people who play role playing games are basically like a bunch of you know you know it's that old mentality of like sweaty nerds that never got anywhere in life still living in their parents basement like that that stigma is still there and you know for a lot of people in the industry a lot of them kind of grew up being on that outside yeah. you know like i guess you want to call it the nerd or the geek like that that was them and that's not a bad thing it's just you know along with that meant that you know growing up they put up with the bullshit from the jocks they put up with the bullshit from the popular people and that has scarred them sure i mean you know, I, so. I i grew up in that 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 was my experience um i i when i was a kid i was a dnd nerd and i tried to keep it a secret because to play dnd was to be a satanist and uh you know or or a variety of other things and of course i was raised in a fairly strict religious house i mean not strict but my parents had some distorted views on religion, and uh, so there were signs, there were portents and omens everywhere you looked that the end times were coming, and that D&D was yet one more tool of Satan to try to scoop my soul out of my body and drag it screaming to hell. Uh, and, you know, you don't think about how that kind of mentality can shape your world, or shape or even distort your worldview. I look back, I mean, even even now, and I am... I'm about as far away from that as I can possibly be. I still am reluctant to tell people what I do for a living. And I think, you know, I, I've had a little success, you know, I've been working and I've been able to do this for as many years I've been able to do. And yet I still can't tell people what I do. And and, and I know, I know why I'm, I mean, I know the reasons why, but it's still, I find it, I find it unsettling that kind of power, the, the power that, those experiences have over me because I don't want to be mocked or ridiculed for, for what I love, even though I know full well that the geeks have inherited the earth and that every oh, time, yeah. <laughs> every, every time I go to the bar, almost guaranteed once a week, some new person will come up to me and say, Hey, I've heard you do this and please tell me about it. And that could be certain. It could certainly be heartening and warming and all the other great soft and squishy stuff that's supposed to do. But it's still weird to me because it feels like this is a job or a hobby that I need to keep buried deep, keep it secret, keep it safe. Yeah, and I think, I think part of that, I think in a way like that whole keep it buried, keep it secret, keep it safe. Like I, I almost think in a way that kind of hurts the industry currently with some things. You know, obviously you've got like your board game boom where it's like. Catan and Ticket to Ride and a lot of those are popular but when it comes time to I'm just going to go ahead and say like the more creative stuff like RPGs and even you know miniature gaming for that matter like the the moment that you you step outside of that like here's basic mechanics for us to move shit around a board and we all go yay and an hour later we're done like the moment that you start stepping into more of that creative realm like I, I think that's the part of the industry that a lot of people are still unaware of like they, they think board games and they're like okay yeah it may not be monopoly anymore it might be Catan. it might be like i said ticket to ride it might be some of those like popular ones but when they think D D, all they all they're still thinking of is you know kind of like you were saying where it's like those people that still kind of keep it secret like right. i can't believe there's people that are in their 30s and 40s still doing this sure but you know i think that i think the hard part is that role-playing games are just weird I mean, yeah, just, of course. I mean, how do you, I mean, people, people ask me is like, what do you do? I'm a writer or I'm a game designer. Oh, what video games you make or uh, what novels you write? And I was like, you don't want to read my crappy novel 
Or and then you have to go the next <laughs> you have to go the next level of of explanation, and then you have to go into the whole history not the whole history but you have to kind of explain in some sort of basic here's some picture diagrams of what of what you actually do in your role play and they still figure out like how the hell do you get that kind of job? I mean role playing games are weird. It's like you're I mean it's saying that you sit around and you bullshit with your friends and then you roll dice every once in a while. I mean, if you really want to get down to the very basics of what that oh, is, yeah. that's all we're doing. Yeah, and then you get older and you just add alcohol. Right. So, I mean, we think about you think about the fact that we're just bullshitting with our friends and rolling dice. That's a good way of explaining that. But also doesn't mean that I should get paid for doing that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it is, as, as you said, it's, it's more involved, right? There's more, there's more creativity. There's, I mean, building a game engine for a role-playing game is... I'm not going to say it's harder than a board game because board games are super hard to make. And because you refining, 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 refining role-playing games the same way, but you're building complete systems and you're still refining, 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 but there's a lot more, there's a lot more direct interaction with, with broader swaths of the game system than you would. Well, not really. That's that's not true. You're actually working in microcosms where you might interact with just part of the game engine, where it was a board game or a card game, you deal with the whole, the whole monkey, right? You get right, to embrace yeah. the whole, the whole thing. And so you have to, yeah. you're working on those pieces in isolation from each other, or if you're not in isolation, you have to worry about how they express the core mechanic and it just becomes very tricky. And I'm, I'm off topic again. I'm sorry about that. I do. That. No, actually you're, you're, you're not, it's, it's totally fine. You know, cause one of the things I was going to mention in there too, is like when you're designing an RPG or something that's a little bit more involved like that, you know, and even kind of going back to the miniatures game, like, it's not just about designing the mechanics anymore because, like, with a board game, and again, not to shit on people who design board games, but, like, with a board game, you design the mechanics and you can pretty much take those mechanics and skin it to whatever you want for the most part. Sure. Um, but whenever you're designing a, a, a role-playing game, like, not only you're designing the mechanics, you're, you know, the, the majority of the work is designing that world that the mechanics are going to be used in, and then you start looking at it like, does this mechanic make sense with, what, with the story that I'm trying to tell? And you know, and you're always kind of fighting with yourself over, yeah, that aspect. I think another part of it too is the fact that you don't have any control over the user experience. When you build a board game or a card game, you know what the bare bones minimum play experience is going to be. You play Monopoly, right. you know that you're going to ruin one friendship, and you're going to be racing around a board over and over and over again, collecting money and destroying other players. But the play experience is going to be pretty much the same every time you play it. People are going to leave kind of sad, a little guilty, and a little upset. They even wasted four hours playing that game. <laughs> and uh, But there are other board games that create positive play experiences, and those are fantastic as well. With a role-playing game, I made Shadow the Demon Lord, and I have no idea what people do in this game. I, I, there's, no, there's, no, there's, not even, there's no seller for me to say, this is the baseline experience. You know, that was... And that's just one of the things that I think D&D and a lot of big box role-playing games are fighting for is to get, deliver the same fundamental experience across table to table to table. But as you go further and further afield from those big games, you have less control and, less, uh, and, it's, and it's almost impossible to anticipate what kind of stories they're going to tell. I mean, the premise of Demon Lord is that there's a, I mean, I already explained it, big cosmic destroyers coming down to ruin your day. But somebody could be playing a game that they're using the Shout of the Demon Lord rules to play through the breakup of a marriage or 
to rob a McDonald's or whatever the hell they want to do. And I don't have any control over that. And I find that that is far more interesting for me when you're comparing uh, entertainment modes uh, or ways you slice up your entertainment pie because I think that's fun and I think it's cool. It makes it terrifying as a designer because I need to be able to build a game that can that can handle the whatever crazy impulse happens to hit my audience. Right, and then there's always going to be those people that throw that curveball at you, like in this case. Like, yeah, so playing Shadows of the Demon Lord, we decided we don't want to use a medieval setting. We're just going to use it to make a crime setting where we're just robbing McDonald's and Burger King. Or even better still, we're inside of Bill Murray's body in Osmosis Jones, and we're trying to solve the mystery. See, that's what I want. I've been fighting for the Osmosis Jones role-playing game for years, and everyone thinks I'm tilting and <laughs> windmills, but I think they just don't recognize the genius of that setting. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot you could do with it. But... You sure could. You can go from campaign setting to campaign setting with a simple act of, of fornication. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah, basically. If it brings a whole new take on the whole, like, you know, I, I am uh, I am securing the future generations of with my greatness, you know. It's, right. And this way, it's the most direct way possible. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be perfect. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah, that uh, I can see some dark, dark things happening with that. We, you know, we won't go off on that. Tangent. No control of what the audience does with a thing I make or the thing we make. Zero, <laughs> zero, none at all. And I'm fairly certain we're going to get somebody writing talking about that too. Maybe so, maybe so. Osmosis Jones role playing game. So I want the license. <laughs> well, hell, you're throwing it out there now. Now it's going to happen. Well, fingers awesome. crossed. <laughs> yeah. So, so tell us. I mean, you've talked a lot about Demon Lord. You've, you've talked to us a little bit about Godless, which was a uh, Kickstarter unlock. Um, one of the things that, like, I, I was kind of wondering about is that I'm, I'm noticing in the industry that obviously, when you're dealing with anything print, the physical book is becoming less and less of a thing. Even in game stores, where um, you know the, the hard copy sales are kind of dropping. Do you, you feel that um, you're starting to see that it's starting to, to balance out more, a little bit like you know, more PDF sales compared to more physical copy sales? I think sales are just crummy all across the board for no matter. I mean, I mean, I think there are exceptions. Uh, I think I know D and D is doing really well right now, and uh, I'm sure Starfinder is going to blow people's skirts up, and whatever the next big thing is going to be. But I think generally it's. There's a lot of fatigue that set in after the D20 bubble burst. And I think the game stores who survived that are reluctant to stock RPGs outside of the guaranteed sellers. And there's, there's always been a tendency to, all right, I'll get this one book in and I'll experiment with it. And if it sells, I can wipe my brow and say, shoo, I got rid of it. Not that you're going to restock it or try to sell it, but it's just more of like, I'm just going to try to make a little dollar, make a little money off of this one book, and then we'll move on. So I think that the market has changed for sure. And I think that it continues to change and evolve. I know I can look at sales through Amazon are really strong for me, um, and which is great. Uh, my PDF sales do really, really well. But a part of my business was was always to release a core book using the traditional print model and get that into distribution and then support that game 
with a dizzying array of digital supplements that have that are available either as print demand or or digital only. And that approach makes sense to me because people like things in bite-sized pieces. People are willing to spend a dollar forty-nine or a dollar ninety-nine on a five to seven page PDF because you know they can read it on the john and they're done. And they can collect them all and look at them all whenever they want. Um, and I think that's from from my business model, that seems to be working pretty well. Now, I don't have any employees other than me. I've got contractors, so I can't say it's working super well. And I'm not building any hotels my name on it, but uh, it's going all right. Nice, nice. Because, you know, we, we've talked with a lot of the independent folks, and it, it seems to be moving away from the distribution model, even yeah. more so. And, and we're not talking direct to stores. They're At this point, they're saying, look, if, even if stores don't want to carry it, the internet's a big, big place. We'll find a way to get it to the people that want to play it. Right. Well, I think Kickstarter certainly played a huge part in this by by the fact that I think it's kind of replaced that model, or at least it's on the verge of replacing that model because it allows you to sell direct to your customers, and then if you get anything else in the distribution after that, it's kind of gravy. Uh, so you make, and that's kind of, and I think that originally the expectation was that you'd be able to do Kickstarter to fund the product and then be able to turn around sales back into regular distribution after the fact. But I'm not 100% sure that's even true anymore. I think there's an expectation now that you you sell through to your backers, have a little bit left over, and try to make whatever kind of profit you can on what's left. And that seems dangerous and scary. Uh, it's also empowering for newcomers trying to break in. But, man, just the numbers are so – You know, the other, the other thing I didn't mention was cost on uh, both uh, money and time – to produce a role-playing game versus almost any other kind of property. I mean, it took me it took me a long time to make Demon Lord, and it cost me fifty thousand dollars at least to make the core book and get it printed. I mean, those are big numbers for a game that sells for fifty bucks a book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a shitload of books that you have to sell in order to even break even. Right, and it probably cost me more than fifty thousand dollars. Not to mention the amount of time it, it took to to make it. Uh, to, to do their initial writing and then to kind of rewrite and rewrite and play test and all those other kinds of things. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, uh, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting problem with role-playing games. I think people like to read them and they like to think about playing them. And, but I, I wonder how many people really do play all that's out there. Yeah, that's, I can see that is definitely much more of a thing, especially nowadays with, uh, you know, internet being so accessible you know, it's sometimes it's easier to, you know, pop on a video game or whatnot. But I, I, I'm almost hoping that if we can't do the traditional, like five people sitting around a table drinking, you know, and, and playing games that way, like, you know, the once a week or every other week or hell, even once a month, just starting to do it digitally, like use Skype, use Roll20, use sure. something to where it's like, okay, the, the role playing game is still alive and well. But just like its sales model, it's changed. Like it, it, it's its play model has changed. Right. I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that. I mean, when I was saying that people playing games, I wasn't so much thinking about the fact that I can do this or that. I think that a lot of people who buy role playing game products now are playing them in their heads um, rather than at the table. And then again, not a criticism. It's more of an observation. I think yeah. that people buy a bunch of role playing games to imagine what it's like to play these games rather than sit down and actually play them. 
And that, for me, is a big fight. I think that role-playing games have to overcome. I mean, I think it is fun to read, read through RPG product and to flip through it and think about all the different things you can do and maybe fool around with it a bit. But I find it so much more satisfying when you sit down and, and with a group of people and you're making up stories and bullshitting with your friends and you're having a really good time by throwing dice and, make, and, and fighting terrifying things. And I don't know what we can do to get back to... I mean, maybe I'm creating a false problem. Maybe it doesn't really exist. But I think that... But I have to wonder. Yeah, you know, it's... Uh... I I think a lot of it is just like anything else where nowadays like people's time is just like pulled in so many different directions. And kind of like you were saying, even with uh, demon Lord, like it's, it's set up to be an 11 session campaign because like our realism, like the idea of running that like year long or two year long campaign, unless you have a dedicated, dedicated group of people, it's just, it's not going to happen. You know, shit pops up. People get older, people get married, people have kids, people move into houses, you know, that house starts having issues or they got to start doing remodels. There's always life that gets in the way of like sitting down for that four or five hours sure. playing a role-playing game. I mean, just even the idea so, of like sitting down, you're like, you have a choice. You can, you just work 12 hours and you've just dealt with it. You've had a fight with your wife. What do you want to do? Do you want to go and play pretend for four hours? Or do you just want to drink a beer and go to bed? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, and that's the fight we all have to face, especially mm-hmm. as we get older. Oh yeah. yeah, and I, I, I think that's I think that's a big, probably the biggest thing to overcome when it comes time to the the RPG community or even even gaming for that matter. Because if you think about it, like, like everybody says, like gaming makes you feel like a kid again, you know. And because of that, like you know, people when they think of gamers, even if it's video games, you know, which is the most common media out there. Like they always think of like the teenager, the one that doesn't have any responsibility outside of just going to school. And they think those are the people that these are built for. But then you look at the average person even buying video games. It's like my age, 35, 36. And people look at it and go, whoa, hey, are you like, don't you have other right. things you need to be doing with your time? Well, you know, I, 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 when I, I, I guess I picked up Destiny a year, maybe a year ago. And I picked up a bunch of other video games, but Destiny was for was perfect for my skill level because I'm not going to try to master a first person shooter. I'm just not going to do it. I just don't have the time or the patience to do it. But it was perfect for my skill level. I felt like I could win, and I felt good about playing it. it and what I find interesting is that maybe people can sometimes bag in that game, but you know, it does exactly what it tells you it's going to do. You're going to run around, shoot aliens. You're going to get different guns. You're going to feel good about yourself, and you're going to be done. And yeah. you're probably going to beat the game in 48 or whatever hours it's going to be to, to beat the whole game. Who cares? Uh, and I just find that interesting because this game, this game appeals to me as a very casual video gamer um, versus you know, something like, I don't know. I love Doom. I loved everything about Doom. But then you know it got to a point where it was beyond my skill set, and so I stopped playing. Not because I couldn't get to the point where it would be within my skill set, I just didn't give a shit enough to to, to go through with it, which maybe right. Lazy. You didn't have. Well, it's yeah, like you were going to say with the the first person shooter. You don't have the time to be sitting in front of the freaking Xbox or PlayStation or computer and just sitting there playing for hours upon hours upon end just to figure out that like if I jump and pull the trigger at this time, it's a guaranteed headshot. Yeah, I'm not doing that. You know, or something along those lines. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. I, I have work to do. <laughs> yeah. So, again, I think that's the big thing that it falls into, especially when you look right. at it from the standpoint that RPGs are, like, just a massive investment of time. 
you know, because and it's a massive investment of time with other people, which I right. think is the, the big part of it. Because like Nick and I have talked about it in the past because we talked to a lot of indie uh, miniatures guys and like a lot of people, their biggest thing when it comes time to miniatures is painting. You know, that takes a massive amount of time, but people manage to do it because they could do it alone. They don't have to do it with somebody else. Right. right. I think that's the, the hurdle with an RPG is that it's that almost that same amount of time as painting miniatures. Only you need to have another two to three people to make that happen the way that it should. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, it's it's really, really tricky to try to keep a group together. Uh, really, really tricky. They get in the meet every week. It's tough. Hell, even every other week, you know, I've, yeah. I've had a lot of people tell me that even that's becoming a struggle. So, uh, you know, I, I just think that uh, that's that's got to be the way that RPGs have to change is that it, it's got to it's got to turn into more of an online experience, which, you know, for the old school, for the old school players, like, you know, I even count myself in that. Like, I like sitting around with my friends at the same table, being able to bullshit, having a few beers, having a few bourbons, whatever right. the case is rolling the dice and like having everybody watch the dice happen, even if it completely fucks you over or <laughs> completely, <laughs> right. it's completely awesome. <clears throat> like just having the other people watch that where it's like, you don't get that same experience online, but that might have to be the way it has to move. Yeah. I think also the convention experience is pretty good for people who still want to scratch the itch. Right. Uh, you know, yeah. the D and D's organized play is a really good thing. There's a lot of people who go there. I mean, I was just at winter fantasy last weekend and I just saw tons and tons and tons of people who were super excited to be there and having a great time playing D and D and playing demon Lord and playing Arcanus. And, you know, it tells me that a lot of people just live for these shows that they go to conventions because there's a guaranteed time where they can meet other gamers and have those kind of experiences without having to try to keep a group together at home. And I think that the convention scene, uh, and, and it seems like every time I look, there's a new convention popping up somewhere. And I think there's a good reason for it because it gives everyone kind of neutral ground to go to. You don't have to worry about having to have a place to play. You're going to have at least a, a, a kind of a baseline level of competence from the people that are going to show up. And, you, and so usually you'll meet fantastic, awesome, great gamers who who are just as just as geeked out as you are about whatever your your game of choice happens to be. So I, I'm all about convention stuff for people looking for a for a way to scratch their D D or RPG itch. Good stuff happens there. Yeah, I think you might be onto something there too, where it, you know I mean conventions are popping up left and right all over. You know, definitely much more on the West Coast than they are here. Like we live in Atlanta in for, oh, okay. or the, the surrounding area and for some reason it just seems like outside of dragon con and maybe momo con like there really well, isn't a you, lot right yeah it's there's a, you can get a mid-south con in memphis if you are willing to make that drive that's a really really great show um and then uh, nashville has hypericon and geek media expo both happen over the summer uh, they both have pretty okay gaming scenes, um, and I've, I've been at both for years. But I mean, I, know, I, know, I get what you're saying. I mean, it's it's really for some reason, and I think that also has something to do with geography. You look at where the the, the heartland of RPGs, uh, the heartland of RPGs is the Midwest, and will always be the Midwest because that's where it started. Uh, yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's. I mean, obviously there are hotel issues and and city sizes that contributed to Gen Con shifting to Indianapolis, but 
Indianapolis is still the Midwest, and you still get a Catacon in Ohio. You get uh, there are a bunch of tiny shows that go on in Indiana. You get Gary Con and Game Hole Con in Wisconsin. There's a couple of great shows in Michigan, and it's all that kind of that scene is just loaded with loaded with shows. I mean, I I hadn't I I, I go to Wisconsin twice a year now for for conventions. It's ridiculous, but it's uh, pretty insane. But it's but the, but the scene there is fantastic. Just really, really fantastic. Yeah, you know, and the funny thing of it is, is I'm actually from originally from the Madison area. Okay. I was born and born and raised in Wisconsin. I, I spend a lot of time in Milwaukee, and I have yet to go to GameholeCon. And it's you been one of those that. where it's like, you know, damn it, I, I I need to get up there at least once to do it. Uh, Alex Kamer does a really, really great job of that show. He, he and his crew are fantastic. Uh, we were. Um, I went. I had it canceled two years ago, but I went this year, or last year rather, and I had a fantastic time. The guest list is absurd, and you know the thing I tell a lot of people that if you have any kind of love, respect for the old guard, there's not. We we don't have all the years left, right? I mean, right. Jim Ward's still kicking around, and uh, Tim Cask is still around, and and Frank Menzer, uh, and and anybody else who works at TSR. If you, if you ever want to know what it was like. And you wanted it to know these people before it's too late. Now is the time to go. Uh, and because we we are we are very lucky to have these people still around and still talking, still gaming, still running games, and still being just as excited as they were 30, 40 years ago. And we should never pass up that opportunity to, to honor the people who kind of built the foundation and our entire hobby rests on. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I, I can almost there. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, no, that's totally <laughs> fine. I mean, I, honestly, the funny thing it is, is like even on the video game spectrum, like people that have been playing Final Fantasy and, you know, Skyrim or any any rendition of Elder Scrolls or pick a freaking RPG. It does not matter. Yeah. You all owe it to them. Right. Period. Because without them, that genre may never may never have existed in a in a in a digital format. Yep. Yeah, so, I'm a, yeah. Any anytime I can, anytime I could spend time with my buddy Frank, I'm going to be very happy. Or Skip Williams, I don't see him nearly enough, but I got to meet uh, Zeb Cook at GaryCon last year, and you know he's just fantastic, full of awesome. So uh, yeah, I really, I, I highly recommend doing those shows, just because uh, you got to do it, man. You got to do it. I got to get up to Game Hole Con now. <laughs> you know, the, the moral imperative. Is, yeah. The funny thing is, I actually heard about Game Holcon for the first time right as the wife and I were getting ready to move to Georgia, and it was it was one of those things that's like, I can't financially sure. and just time wise fit that into my schedule to make that happen. So it's you know it just what is one of those things where it's like, well, I guess I got to skip it. But like the more and more and more I've been hearing about it, and I guess it's been growing every year. And yeah. Uh, so, it's it's cool because Gamehole and GaryCon both kind of scratch a similar itch, uh, but they de- they definitely have their own personalities. So you don't feel like you're just doing a, a retread of one or the other. They they are very much different shows, but they have the same kind of vibe. Nice. So a lot of it is all just like scratching that nerd itch and you know getting down and I guess really getting down and dirty with the games that you just don't have time to play anymore. Yeah. I mean, when I, I guess it was, uh, it was 2015 was the first Gary Con I went to. And it was, I went during the middle of my Kickstarter and you, 
let me tell you for the kids at home running a kickstarter there are there are few things that you can do worse for your your stress and body than kickstarter <laughs> um <laughs> but anyway, I did two. I did two conventions back to back during that month that I was running it, and I had been running the same set of demos over and over and over again. But when I went to GaryCon, uh, I walked in that show and I had I think I ran six tables that weekend, six four hour slots, six or seven, something like that. And the thing that struck me was that. I could go and explain the rules in less than 10 minutes and every one of the table had it. And I've been running demos for this game throughout 2014 and all the way into 2015 and ever since. And I have never encountered people who were able to pick up the game as fast as that. And my game's not difficult by, by any means, but it was, I really felt like I was dealing with a different caliber of gamer. No offense to the people who were out there at other shows I've run for. You're great too. But I was just I was just taken aback by these are people who are here to game, they know what they want, and they they're they're super invested in the entire hobby. Just it was a it was a astonishing and very rewarding experience. Nice, nice. Well, Nick, do you got anything else to throw in there, man? I think that uh, I mean we definitely ran over in our time, which I am totally fine with because you've been <laughs> complete freaking awesome to talk to. And, oh well, uh, we thank definitely- you very much. But uh, Nick, is there anything else you want to throw in there real quick? I know you've been over there painting in the background the whole time. Oh man, well I, I'm sorry. I, I've been uh, I've been over here painting and snotting. That's that's the two things I've been doing. <laughs> painting with your snot—that's a bold move. It is. You know what? Next time someone picks up your mini, and goes, "Oh, hey, that's cool." Yeah, that's got my snot all over it. You just saved yourself all sorts of money getting snot green from Citadel. So good job exactly. on that front. Oh man. <laughs> No, I, no, uh, other than, you know, this, this starts off a whole new year for us. You're, you're, uh, yes, episode one of year two of Skirmish Supremacy. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very proud to be on episode one. I hope your other guests suck. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm telling Jim. <laughs> Which Jim? Jim Pinto? Yes, he's on here uh, quite a bit. We love talking with that guy. That bastard. No, I love him. <laughs> See, if both of you have just the right amount of salt, I want to get both of you on at the same time. We, should, just, make, we should make that happen. Jim and I are just, we're, we're we're good friends. That, that that was that was what I was. That's what I've been thinking the whole way through. Is I'm like, you know, we need to get these two on here. I, we don't even really have to do anything except for throw something out there and yeah. just let them go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that that might be the very first skirmish supremacy episode, skirmish supremacy episode. I'll have to say there's a trigger warning for this one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you and... play any of these games, do not listen. Right. <laughs> All those letters uh, you've talked about getting that we haven't got, they would happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're probably right. <laughs> By the bucket awesome. load. <laughs> so. One last thing to throw in there for our listeners. We are actually recording on Nick's birthday. So happy birthday, you little bastard. Oh, Woo-hoo! happy birthday. Why, thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, Robert, again, it was awesome having you on. We definitely have to do this again. Yeah, for sure. And uh, stay in touch, man. Let us know the, the next new hotness coming out. If there's any links you want to throw our way, I mean, we're going to be posting your stuff all over on 
on our uh, our pages and everything else and letting people know all about the awesomeness that is uh, Shadows of the Demon Lord. So thank you very much. Just uh, make sure you all show up and support my Kickstarter. It's coming up in a couple of weeks. It's going to be we're bringing Freeport, the city of adventure to the world, the Demon Lord. Nice. Send so us the info. We'll, we'll definitely get that out there for you. That'd be great. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thanks. Right, guys. Great. Thank you. Yes, thanks for coming on. And folks, that will wrap up this episode of Skirmish Supremacy, episode 53, or as Nick said, season, season two, episode one. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of Skirmish Supremacy. To see more of the antics that Nick and I do, you can check us out on Facebook at Skirmish Supremacy. We also have Twitter, which we can be reached at Skirmish Supreme, because apparently Skirmish Supremacy does not fit in Twitter. And if you want to email us directly, you can reach us at Tim at SkirmishSupremacy.com or Nick at SkirmishSupremacy.com. Thanks for listening.